Good morning, Mission View Church. It's good that we could be together. I hope you enjoyed breakfast. I've been told by a few people that we need to keep the message down to 20 minutes since you're filled with carbs. Uh, but only, the only people that have permission to sleep today are the infants. So if you're not an infant, you're not allowed to sleep. So just keep that in mind. So we're continuing our series on working for God. And today we're going to take a look at success. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but at every stage of life, we kind of define success differently. When I was in elementary school, success was not being picked last for kickball. Okay, that was a success. Or in my lunch, if my mom put a full pack of Nutty Bars, it was, yes. And by the way, whoever brought the Nutty Bars today, I am really thankful for you. I haven't had one of these since I was a kid, so I'll eat that later. Uh, so that was elementary school. And then you move to middle school. And middle school, was success was defined by waking up in the morning and looking in the mirror and seeing that you didn't have a new pimple. I mean, if your voice didn't crack all day long, it was a successful day. In high school, for me, when uh, success was if Debbie Green gave me a glance or if someone was actually interested in me to go to the high school homecoming game, or if I passed my English literature class. I hated English lit. That was horrible. Now, in college, for me personally, it changed as well there. I would like to think it got more sophisticated. It really didn't. It could have been me passing a, a Greek exam, but that wasn't success for me. Success, I can remember one situation in particular where I felt victorious, successful as a student. See, this is how the event went. The, the girl floor that we were associated with, the guy, there was guy floors and there was girl floors, they were required any time that they went out into the city that they had to have guys chaperone them along the way. And so they called over to the, uh, the, the, their brother floor and said, is anybody available? And it just so happens that I was the only one. So it was a default thing, but I was the only one that was available. And when I went down to the lobby, there was 10 women. Now, before I went down there, I knew that there was going to be a bunch of girls. And I thought, you know what? I got to make my best impression upon these girls. So I took and I put on my best brown slacks. I put on a nice white shirt that wasn't wrinkled and a belt. Now, no wrinkles and a belt is not synonymous with college, but that's what I did. I was ready to go and have a great time escorting these young ladies to a, it was like a men's or a choral choir event uh, in town somewhere. So we get down to the lobby and there are the ladies, they're all dressed up and then there's just me, one, 10, Awesome. Awesome. It was great. And so as I turned to lead them, I was opening the door and I'm hearing giggles along the way. And so they're giggling and I'm like, man, I'm making a good impression. This is awesome. And we get onto a bus and the bus was packed filled with people. And we came to one stop and an elderly woman got on the bus. And as she's coming on the bus, there's no seat. So what did I do? I jumped up and gave her my seat, and all of a sudden behind me, the girls were sitting, I heard some more giggles. I thought, man, score points for chivalry. 
this is awesome that I can have this influence. And so we made all kinds of bus transfers and finally got to the concerts. And there was more giggles along the way. And we went through the whole evening. And when we got back to the dorm, I said goodbye to the ladies. And they're still giggling. And I'm going inside the building. And I am ready. Now that my ego has been massaged, I am ready to do what a man should do. And that is brag. And so uh, the first person I saw was Scott, my RA. He was sitting at the front desk. It was his duty that night to be at the front desk, so he was manning it. And I went to the desk, and I said, Scott, you wouldn't believe the evening I had. I just chaperoned 10 of the finest ladies at Moody to an event, and so I bragged on and on about this opportunity that I had. And then I turned around, and I went, and I touched the elevator button. He said, hey, Steve, come here. And you know, there was a sudden moment of panic that I had because for some reason I thought there's going to be something that Scott's going to tell me that's going to give me bad news and all of a sudden my memory was jogged because earlier that week my nice brown slacks, I had put a rip in them and I had put a rip in them all the way from my zipper to my back belt loop. Now, how I did not notice this, and to say it was a rip is an understatement, it was a complete blowout. So all night long, I was giving them the vertical white smile, and I was showing them my tidy whities the entire time. What I thought was a success ended up being a horrible, horrible failure, and I promise you, I am not exaggerating on any point on that story. See, we all have ways in which we view success in life. And of course, when we get to be adults, we become much more sophisticated in what we view as success. We want to make sure that we're successful in the things that matter. We want to be successful in our business. And that's a good thing. We want to be successful in love and in marriage. We want to be successful with our finances. We want so many areas of our life to be successful. And we do that because that's within us. God created us to be successful. But have we really thought about what success is in God's eyes and in God's kingdom? Today, that's our goal. What we want to do is we want to look at what success is from God's point of view. Now, this is not going to be a comprehensive list of all the successes that we can have. But what we are going to see is Paul, the Apostle Paul, who's writing 2 Corinthians chapter 2 to the Corinthian church, he lists four things. I see four areas of success that the church was achieving. And so he gives, in a sense, encouragement in that area. And so I think that we can learn from that. Now, let me tell you how significant this is, because this is a church that Paul had written three letters previous to this that were negative news. He was constantly confronting them. There was disunity. There were sexual sins. There were all kinds of problems within the church. And so finally, Paul gets to write some encouraging things to this church, and it's an awesome thing. And so what I hope we can do today is take a look at these successes and overlay it on what God is doing here at Mission View. Let's pray that God's Spirit would speak to our hearts. Dear Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, we pray that your spirit would fill this place. I pray that your spirit would touch each of our hearts. 
Lord, if there is areas of spiritual blindness, would you remove the veil? Would you move the, remove the blinders? Lord, I pray that you would give clear communication of your spirit to the hearts of individuals. And I pray that this man delivering the message would stay out of the way and that your spirit would have freedom to work in each of our hearts. Lord, in the areas that we need to be encouraged today, I pray that we would walk out encouraged. I pray that you would do something special in each and every one of us. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So let's take a look at the first area of success. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to pick up in verse 5. And the first area of success is in the area of repentance, success of repentance. So let's think about what Paul says. He says, now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measures, not to put it too, too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. We'll look at that in a minute. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, he and, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Now, at first glance, you might say, Steve, where is the success in all of that? Well, we need to understand the context to understand where the success was. Evidently, there was somebody in the church that had committed what, what I would call a grievous sin. There are sins like jaywalking. There's sins like speeding. There's sins like we don't completely tell the, the whole truth because we're trying to save our hide some way. And those are wrong things. But then there are grievous sins that really, that the Holy Spirit, because they're continual actions, that the Holy Spirit's coming down on an individual because of that. And there was somebody that had committed these continual grievous sins within the church. Now, some commentaries or theologians believe possibly it could be the person referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a man that was having a sexual relationship with his father's wife. In other words, his stepmother. So it was an ancestral relationship, and it was grievous to God. It's possible that that could be the person he's talking about here. It could be just somebody that had been guilty of slander against Paul and against the church. But here's what we need to know. When someone sins grievously, it hurts many people in the church. Because that was very evident within this context that it hurt Paul and it hurt those within the church. In my history as a pastor, I have seen that so much. I've seen when there's affairs. I've seen when individuals have embezzled money in their own corporation, in their own business, how that affects other people. I I, when people are slanderous towards others, when there's addictions, all these things do not happen in a vacuum. They always hurt somebody else. Other people are caught in our sins. And when sin takes place, there's somebody that has to deal with it. There's the one that has to deal with the betrayal. There's the daughter or son that has to deal with the issue of divorce of mom and dad not getting along because of whatever's happened. There's the family members that have had to deal with the addictions that are going on in the family. Whatever the sin is, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. In fact, Romans says the wages of sin is death. We've said that many, many times. You've heard that phrase. And yes, it causes spiritual death, but do you understand? It's talking about destruction. Sin brings destruction. 
And because grievous sins can happen within the church, Paul had instituted what Jesus had instituted already, that there are times that you have to enact discipline within the church. Now, last week, I talked a little bit about church discipline. And some of you were scratching your heads. You, not, you, have not, you had not heard that uh, concept of church discipline. I want you to see where it comes from. Because I believe this is exactly the context of this passage. They were, by shunning the people, by, by shunning the person that was refusing to repent, when it says the punishment of the majority is enough, they were enacting some form of church discipline. Well, where do we get that? Why would we ever discipline in the church? Well, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 18. Listen to his words. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained your brother. In the story, it's done. But if he does not listen... Take one or two of others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as the Gentiles and tax collectors. Now notice that God's plan, Jesus' plan for confronting sin, is to confront it again and again and again as much as necessary for that sin to be made known. Now, know the heart of God. This is really, really important. In any kind of discipline by God, the goal is always restoration. When we discipline our children, the goal is that we would restore them, that they would understand where they were out of bounds. God does the same thing when grievous sins are within the body of Christ. He wants to restore. But in order to restore, there has to be repentance. And if you refuse to repent, refuse to repent, refuse to repent, I'm going to do what I want to do, then eventually Jesus says, turn them over and treat them like a lost person. In 1, Corinthians Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul reiterates this, but in this way. He says, you are to deliver this man. He's talking about the person who's been warned again and again and again. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You say, well... That's pretty harsh, Steve, especially for the non-confrontational person. I mean, nobody wants to be a part of that. Isn't that harsh that you deliver them over to Satan? Well, think about it. Logically, the person who has, is under this discipline, who has refused to believe and refused to repent, refused to repent, refused to repent, has probably already left the church. It's already done. He's, he's saying, you know what? Those Christians are all judgmental, and that's where they are. And so this is where they are in, in life. They've already separated themselves from God. And so when they're out here, they're outside of the umbrella of God's protection because they've removed themselves. They've walked away from God. And so all Paul is doing is identifying the natural consequences of walking away from God. And when we walk away from God, guess what? We're in Satan's playground. And when we play with fire, we sometimes get burnt. And what, what Paul is saying and what Jesus is saying is sometime in tough love, you just have to let them go until they come to their senses. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? 
Son wants his inheritance. He goes to the father, says, Father, give me my inheritance. The father knows what's going on. And he goes and he spends it. He's having a great time. While the father is worrying at home, while the father is on his knees, probably at home, begging God, please bring my son home. Please bring my son home. Please, I want my son. Well, the son is out doing whatever he wants and we're not given the time frame. But what we know is eventually he runs out of resources. And guess what? He eventually starts eating with the pigs. He gets so low. He gets so by himself. He's so lonely. And at that moment, when he is all by himself alienated, the passage says, and he came to his senses. Sometimes people have to be alone so that they can come to their senses. And that's where the Spirit of God starts to work, to draw them in. Here's what we need to know. There is no amount of persuading that we can do to convince a sinner to change their course of action. Sometimes we have to turn that person completely over to God. And when they sense that, they come to their senses. Now you say, Steve, wasn't this about good news? It is about good news, but I needed to set the context. The good news is whoever was under that church discipline repented. They came back to the church. They said, I have done wrong. I have sinned against God. I have sinned against you. That is what is implied here because the apostle Paul says, the punishment by the majority is enough. In other words, guys, stop. Back off. You have been so harsh with this individual and you need it to be for a while. But now back off. And what you need to do is you need to turn and give forgiveness and comfort. See, what we see here is the success of repentance. See, each of us, we, we have experienced that success every time we do 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. And so every day that we do that and we approach God and we realize we've messed up, there is a repentance that is on an ongoing basis and there's success there. But there are times that we walk away or individuals walk away and they're grievous towards God. When they finally turn back, God says, you're cleansed and you're forgiven. And so the, oh, the whole idea is that God wants intimacy. Just as Josh pointed out, that's our mission. That's what we want for us to walk together in intimacy with God. And I will tell you what a privilege it is to lead a church of so many that want that intimacy. So many of you are striving to know God. So many of you are asking for that cleansing on a daily basis. And that is victory. That is success. Here's the second area of success that he had. The second area of success was forgiveness. Now think about that. Repentance is step one, but forgiveness is going to involve us. This is what Paul says. He has to instruct them on this. He says, so I beg you, I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. For the one who has repented, reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know that you are obedient in everything. You see, forgiveness is a test of our obedience. 
Anyone who, whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for the sake, for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his design or his schemes. So the second area of success is forgiveness. Forgiveness being granted. Now here is the sticky wicked when it comes to forgiveness. We hear the instruction, yes, you are to forgive. We hear it clearly in the scriptures. But on this hand, we realize how much hurt and how much pain came through their sin. And I will tell you, it is very difficult when you have been, when a trust has been violated, when there has been trickeries, when there has been lies, when there's been harsh words, when there's been lashing out, when there's been anger, when there has been betrayal. These are words that describe the damage that is created when sin takes place in relationships. And this is why some people say, I can never trust you again. I will never forgive you. I hate you. I understand that. I understand it big time. And more importantly, God understands it. God understands it. And yet God tells us in Colossians 3, when someone repents, we are to forgive whatever grievances that you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. See, God will never ask you and I to do something that he hasn't first done. And he did it for you and I. He forgave us. Does this mean that trust is instantly returned? No, trust isn't instantly returned, but it means the process begins. The process begins. See, forgiveness is one of those things that's easier for us to instruct other people to do, but it's very difficult for us to do ourselves. And I can hear someone saying, but Steve, you just don't understand my circumstances. What I know is that forgiveness is difficult. Let's learn from this video. Thank you, Lord. In a small apartment building in North Minneapolis, a 59-year-old teacher's aide sings praise to God for no seemingly apparent reason. Indeed, if anyone was to have issues with the Lord, it would be Mary Johnson. For all you've done for me. He never had a chance. In February 1993, Mary's son, Loramian Bird, was shot to death during an argument at a party. He was 20 and Mary's only child. My son was gone. The killer was a 16-year-old kid named O'Shea Israel. I wanted justice. He was an animal. He deserved to be caged. And he was. Tried as an adult and sentenced to 25 and a half years, O'Shea served 17 before being recently released. He now lives back in the old neighborhood, close to Mary. This close. He lives next door. Next door. How a convicted murderer ended up living a door jam away from his victim's mother is a story not of horrible misfortune, as you might expect, but of remarkable mercy. A few years ago, Mary asked if she could meet O'Shea here at Minnesota's Stillwater State Prison. As a devout Christian, she felt compelled to see if there was some way, if somehow 
she could forgive her son's killer. What'd she say to you? I believe the first thing she said was, look, you don't know me, I don't know you, let's just start with right now. And I was befuddled myself. O'Shea says they met regularly after that. When he got out, she introduced him to her landlord, who, with Mary's blessing, invited O'Shea to move into the building. Today, they don't just live close, they are close. Clearly, Mary was able to forgive. Unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son, but the forgiveness is for me. It's for me. For O'Shea, it hasn't been that easy. I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. I'm learning how to forgive myself, and I'm still growing towards, you know, trying to forgive myself and what it is I've done. To that end, O'Shea is now busy proving himself to himself. He works at a recycling plant by day and goes to college by night. He says he's determined to pay back Mary's clemency by contributing to society. In fact, he's already working on it, singing the praises of God and forgiveness at prisons, churches, to large audiences everywhere. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. Yes, I'm grateful. Which explains why Mary can sing her praise of thanks to her audience so of one. Steve Hartman, CBS yes, News, Minneapolis. For all you've done for me. What a powerful story. Church, we are successful when we forgive each other in our relationships. And I'm thankful that on minor levels and on major levels, I believe that forgiveness happens here. It happens within our families. It happens within our community groups. It happens in the church. Because guess what? Somebody's going to say something wrong in this church. Somebody's going to say something with a harsh tone. Somebody's going to do something that irritates you or that's insensitive. As long as we deal with people in humanity, if you want to escape that, then you go nowhere. But in the body of Christ, God gave one beautiful gift. And the beautiful gift is forgiveness. Because if we cannot forgive those around us, then we will be imprisoned within ourselves, And I am so thankful that I have a body that I get to shepherd, that elders get to shepherd, that believe in forgiveness. But if there's somebody you need to forgive, you need to take that before God. You need to do that. Have success in that area. Here's the third area of success. The third area of success was the spread of the gospel. Take a look at what Paul says in verse 12 and 13. He says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though the door was open for me and the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. Now in, this two, in these, two, these two verses, there's some heartache, but there's also success. Now, the success is that Paul went to Troas and preached the gospel, and lots of people responded. But let's understand the bookends. What led up to Troas? Well, Paul had just been ousted out of Ephesus, and he made it out of there alive by the skin of his teeth. 
You see, because of him having a presence there for two years and for him proclaiming the gospel, he was there long enough that idol sales started to plummet. You can read this in Acts chapter 19. And as a result, there were people that were like, hey, my business is being affected. This is an assault against the temple Artemis. This is assault against our pocketbook. And so therefore, they were out for blood. And Paul was in their crosshairs. And they couldn't find him anywhere, but they rioted. And the church leaders sent him out so he escaped by the skin of his teeth. So he gets to Troas. Now as he's going to Troas, on his heart is this overwhelming concern that had been there for the Corinthian church. They hadn't repented of their sins quite yet, and he was concerned to hear the news from Titus who had been there, who had been with the church, and he wants to hear from them. So he gets to Troas. He's looking for Titus. He doesn't find him, but he has opportunity, and he preaches the gospel, and God does something beautiful in in the midst of all the distractions for Paul, God sends a revival to the city. And evidently, this is where the church in Troas began. And so in a minute, we're going to look at what happened after that. But I want to zone in on the success here. I want us to see what God's worldview is in terms of success. You see, God's worldview of success is the gospel going out to those that do not know Christ. That is success. And what I love about Mission View Church is that I believe there is a growing passion for the gospel. This summer, we did a counterculture series, and in that, the whole goal was for us to see the world around us and not alienate ourselves from the world, but to love the world, to come alongside of those that may not know Christ, and hopefully that has been cultivated in your own heart. But what I've seen in action is I have seen so many people being a part of the community, hosting Bible clubs, volunteering for community outreaches. Some have been in the process of foster care. Some have uh, taken in foreign, foreign exchange students into their homes. And some of those guys are here today, and I, I'm so glad that you are here if you're a foreign exchange student. I'm thankful for you. Some people held block parties. What I see is a greater desire for people to embrace their community and to love them with all their heart. I see a growing passion for the gospel. In your, in your community groups, you receive or will receive this article called Simple Ways to Be Missional. The word missional means reaching out to our community. And I want to ask each of you to prayerfully consider the things that are in this article. It's to give you ideas of how you can be better, uh, better equipped to be missional or to reach out into your community. And if you don't have one, email the church office. We'll send you it by email so that you can have it because we want to grow in this success. Well, here's the final success that we have in their passage the final success is in verses 14 through 17. And the success is this, that we get to participate on God's team. We get to participate on God's team. Now listen to what Paul says and the attitude and the tone in which he says it. But thanks be to God, who in Christ Jesus always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance and the knowledge of him everywhere. 
For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To others, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like many, peddling God's word, but as men of sincerity and commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So Paul breaks out in praise here. But why does Paul break out in praise? Here's what we know. After, after he goes to Troas, he immediately leaves and goes to Macedonia, and he's looking for Titus. And there he finds Titus. Now, up to the point that he finds Titus, we're told in 2 Corinthians 7, these things, that Paul was conflicted, he had fears within, he, had, he was downcast, he was deeply troubled for his concern for the Corinthian church. Kind of sounds like that parent that is concerned for the spiritual well-being of their kids. Any parent ever feel that angst within their hearts? A lot of us. Especially if you have adult children that are far from God. They've heard of God. They know of Christ, but they're far from God. And so that is the angst that is within Paul's heart. It's the angst that I know some of you understand. Well, let me ask you something. If you have an adult child that's far from God, and one day that adult child comes home and says, Mom and Dad, I want you to know that I have been way out in left field. I have walked away from God, and I am so sorry that I have sinned against God. I am so sorry that I have sinned against you, and I have rededicated my life to the Lord, and I want you to know I am going to serve him from this day forward. Let me ask what you would do. Are you not going to do your happy dance? Are you not going to be killing the fatted calf? Are you not going to be like the prodigal father when his son came home and says, give me the best calf. Give me a, a beautiful robe. Give me the insignia ring. I am going to rejoice because my son has come home. Please understand, that's the attitude that Paul has because what he received was great news that the Corinthians had, had, had confessed their sins and repented of God and had, are, were drawing near to God. And Paul was doing this happy dance in the end zone, and he is so excited. And so this is what he says. What he does is he actually takes an analogy from the Romans. The Romans had this thing called the triumph. It was a parade that they participated in. And here's what happened in the triumph. Whenever the Romans would come back from a campaign of wars and their warriors were coming into the city, the people would line the streets and they would bring their incense out and they would put rose petal on the main corridor of the street. And as the Roman guards were coming in in their full dress uniforms, perfectly clean, spit shine, and as they were coming in and the horse were tromping on the, uh, the rose petals, the fragrance of the rose petals would arise to them. And then the incense would mix in with that and the praises of the people would happen. And it was just absolutely electrifying to the senses. And so this is what Paul is giving an analogy of, and he wants us to understand what the triumph is all about. But instead of it being the Romans, it's God. It's God that he wants us to understand. So here's the analogy. Number one, first, God is our king. 
For the Roman Caesar was their king. He was the one per, to provide all the resources they needed. But he is saying here in this passage, but thanks be to God. My friends, do you realize how much God loves you? Do you realize how much God cares for you and how Christ makes intercession for you? God does everything he can to provide for the success of each of his Christ followers. Here's the second thing we see, that Jesus is leading the parade. It says in the passage, Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. See, at the head of the parade is the main victor. It's the captain. It is the one worthy of all the praise. But guess what? We're in the parade as well. We are, as Christ followers, in this parade. But Christ is the focal point. He's always the focal point. In this ministry, when we sing, he's the focal point. When we preach, he's the focal point. Why? Because he's the one that died on a cross. He's the one that went into the grave. And he's the one who resurrected from the grave, which no one has ever done. Only Jesus Christ alone, which makes him King of kings and Lord of lords and has the right to say, you must repent of your sin. Jesus leads us in triumphal procession. But here's the third thing. Notice what we are. We are instruments of influence. We're instruments of influence. See, our part in the battle for the soul is, is the battle for the souls of men is that we share the fragrance of Christ to those that are around us. This is what the passage says. And through us, that's you and I as Christ followers, spreads the fragrance and the knowledge of him everywhere. Church, do you realize that God has given us the greatest privilege to allow others to see Christ through us? And it's a beautiful thing that he allows a fragrance that's good that comes from us. Have you ever pulled into your driveway and you smell steak cooking? And you're thinking to yourself, oh, I hope that's us. I hope that's me. I hope that steak is on our grill and not on my neighbor's grill. See, the smell precedes where you actually find where the substance is. And so this is how you are in the workplace. This is how you are with your friendships. This is how you are with your neighbors. You are a fragrance of life long before they even realize what you represent. And someday they will ask you, and hopefully you will tell them with all of your heart and with great confidence that Jesus Christ has made all the difference in your life. We are a fragrance. But notice the fourth thing. We can't control the outcome. It says this, the lost will either be drawn to life or death. This is a hard reality. This is what Paul says. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To others, a fragrance of life to life. Here's the reality that we must face in this battle. Some will smell the aroma of Christ and will reject it. That's a reality. Now, I've shared with you my love for shopping. My, actually, my lack of love for shopping. But at Christmas time, we must do it. And sometimes we go down to Aurora Farms and we go into the Yankee Candle Place. And on occasions, my wife will pick up a candle and she will smell it. And she says, oh, that, sounds, that smells good. And then she puts it in front of my nose, and I think it smells worse than the hind end of a stunk. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 that's not coming to our house. Same candle, 
different reactions. Same God, different reactions in the people that are around us. We can't control that. What we are to do is to be the fragrance of Christ. Here's the last thing he says. He says, we are unworthy. Notice what he asks in the question. He says, who is sufficient for these things? See, the point is that no one is adequate in and of themselves to participate in such a victory dance, but God is the one who supplies all that we need. And what Paul says in the closing verse is he says, I'm not a peddler of, wor of the word, which he was being accused of, but rather I'm a man who is sincere. I'm a man that is commissioned by God. I am a man who speaks Christ to all. And that is the lesson of success that we all learn. My friends, success is when we repent. Success is when we are willing to forgive. Success is when we spread the gospel of Christ and we are an aroma of Christ. And success is when we participate in what God has called us to do in his mission. Today, as we close our service with this song, we're singing a song about beautiful things, how God takes the rubbish and he does beautiful things in our life. Let's stand, let's worship, let's reflect on the words, and let's hear what the Spirit of God is saying to you.